0: All right, before we kick things off, I have that book to give away. It's called KISS, Stocks to Build a Second Source of Income. Uh, they're not really S's in the K-I, it's more dollar signs. So it's uh, Keep It Simple Stupid, Stocks to Build a Second Source of Income, a book that looks away from the maths and the formulas, but at the basic concepts that by the time you're 30, you should understand if you want to take full advantage of time and compound interest, or you just want to get into the investing game. So I like it because... Because it's personal, it looks at financial planning and it looks at so much that can get lost in this world of 24-hour global financial news coverage. You know, it embodies a values of thrift and self-reliance and independence. So if you'd like a copy of the book that I have to give to you today, you have to send me a WhatsApp. Here's your question. What is common to tulips, com, new issues? Are they A? All companies set up by Jack Maher. B. All names of stock market bubbles or C all new technologies developed in the u.s nine seven one seven eight eight nine three. good luck ladies and gentlemen now time to bring on jacob Dew. he's my special guest today's cio of envision wealth management this is money and me and we are going to be talking about whether you need to rethink your portfolio for a post-pandemic environment we're going to kick that off first so jacob good morning welcome Good
1: morning, Michelle. Thank you for having me. I today. bet
0: you know the answer to that question, but I, I won't ask you to share your, your thoughts because y- you give it away. <laughs> 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 so we'll, we'll put a harder question to you, uh, Jacob. So in twenty, we're moving to the twenty twenties. Will we need to? Ad- Think of a new portfolio for the new decade because there are expanded opportunity sets and an understanding that truly safe assets no longer um, maybe can offer the best possible income and that there are specific trade-offs that investors can more fully exploit. So the study that I was looking at, uh, the JP Morgan study, said the 60 40 bond equity portfolio that's been such a mainstay amongst long-term investors needs a rethink. What do you think?
1: Well, I guess, you know, to come up with a definite answer around that, you to know, analyze exactly what's the basis for the assertion. I mean, the fact is that I mean, with the imminent availability of the vaccine and the world economies grew gradually restarting and perhaps even inflation will start to set in. Now, in the current scenario, the yield curve will be expected to steepen and we are beginning to witness that already in the U.S. yield curves. Credit spreads have already tightened for Asia, credit since April, but there's limited room for further tightening. However, in America, the credit spread itself is still relatively wide, especially for the zombie companies, and there's a lot of them in there. Then one should be aware also of taking such credit to risk into their portfolio itself. And then across the Atlantic, the yields are negative. Look at the European, especially the European govies. It's been like a negative view for the longest time, and the majority of the European issues are in negative as well. And in China, you've seen recently the default cases by some of the SOEs, and that has caused concern among the investors. So that formed the basis of a rethink, exactly. If you want to keep a balanced portfolio, should you be keeping a 60-40? Because within the fixed income space, increasingly, that space becomes more constrained, and the opportunities available itself is getting smaller and smaller. So that's when the consideration is that. But of course, for balanced um, investors, the fact is that you know there's not much um, you could do because if you would change, tell them to do the different asset allocation to move into alternatives. That's when the problem will start because then the profile may not necessarily fit exactly what the portfolio may generate. So therefore, you're asking the clients to take higher risk for someone who is going to be balanced. So it's, it's going to be a, a, you know, a potentially a difficult choice for the investor to make. Of course, there are alternatives. You know Things like, for example, if you look into things like the trade receivables, if you look at private debt or even logistics or even some of these notes that can generate fixed income like uh, payout, but with um, the entire issue being packaged into a note and is collateralized, and that would be the alternative within the fixed income space. Otherwise, for to move investors into other alternatives like cryptocurrencies, or into even you know um, collateralized loans itself, that itself you are asking clients to move away and change the credit profile.
0: Um, do you think that? Uh, investors might find the level of market risk required to generate this acceptable level of return increasingly unpalatable unless you embrace the trade-offs like currency risk, um, illiquidity. So where can investors then look for uh, prospects of positive real returns? Develop market bonds?
1: Well, there are there are a lot of opportunities, actually. I mean, within the traditional sense of the fixed income asset class, if you could look at, I mean, everybody will be looking for the positive yields. And, of course, you know, like I mentioned earlier, the European issues definitely will not qualify a good majority or negative yields. In U.S., the better credits are exhibiting low yields. Um, therefore, if you move down the credit spectrum, you find a positive yield, but then you may potentially face zombie companies, and that's where you do want to get yourself into that kind of space. Then if you look at, say, the companies with strong balance sheets and cash flows within the U.S. markets and emerging markets, that will give you some of the opportunities available right now. Um, one of the things, of course, the investors should be looking forward for is to keep the duration short because then an increase in inflation as the economy recovers will mean an increase in the credit spreads of some of these leveraged companies and a decrease in bond prices. So look for in fixed income instruments that has also high coupon resets then that is in itself will give you a better chance, right? As is, you know, inflation sets in, and it, when the Federal Reserve allows inflation to go beyond two percent, and um, in, interest rates start to increase, at least you are compensated for that increase. And within China itself, one should not rely on the fact that just because a company is a SOE or LGFB, the uh, you know the issuer will has the support of the provincial government or the central government. Well, instead the investor should look at the entity itself, whether it's a strategically important entity to the government itself. Then that's when you know definitely there will be a guarantee or some some form of guarantee from the government. And these are the sort of fixed income instruments or of opportunities that's available right now. Because majority of them will just take things for granted just because that the entire SOE is it's a SOE per se. You definitely will get a default guarantee, but no, it's not the case. So outside of the traditional fixed income asset class, then of course, like, you know, one could look at alternate fixed income instruments, like mentioned earlier, the trade receivables, because then mm. what you can see is that you're taking on a similar credit risk for a higher return as compared to uh, the regular bonds. See, for example, recently, HDB has issued a uh, 15-year bond, but it pays only 1.3% good bond. So rather than paying, taking a 15-year exposure on HDB and getting only 1.3% per annum, you could consider a trade similar trade receivable with a similar exposure to HDB again, and yet you are getting approximately about four to five percent absolute on a quarter a quarterly basis. Hmm. So that's exactly what I mean in terms of within the fixed income asset class. There are certain pockets of opportunity you can look for certain uh, levels. Of course, for the high net worth individuals, they could consider private debt. And within the private debt space, uh, that's a different story altogether because what the private debt guys will do is that they will issue a senior tranche bond, a senior unsecured um, credit uh, bond itself, and generally they will tend to work with the private equity guys so that in the event of, um, say, you know, if it doesn't go for IPO, there's nothing happens, then at least you have got you rank the highest in terms of the prepayment and you have got collaterals that you actually will be due to you first.
0: Excellent, excellent ideas there. If, if we come back to J.P. Morgan's long-term capital market assumptions, I just want to bounce one off you. The return forecast for China A shares, Taiwan and Korea equities at 7.5 for China A shares, 7.1 for Taiwan, 6.4% for Korea, uh, compared to 4.9% for developed market equities. What do you make of this forecast?
1: Well, I would say that... um The basis for that forecast is because of the economy opening up, especially in the North Asia's part. You see exactly how they have been handling the entire COVID-19 situation and how the economies have bounced back. The recent GDP figures has been pretty encouraging. And within China itself, um, increasingly you find that um, they are now doing a lot of things within the economy to be self-sustainable. Um, and also to move away from all the economic restrictions coming imposed by U.S. especially. So within that, they are increasing their own demands, which means there's a, there's, there's a shift from being export-dependent to the, um, within depending on the economy internally. So on the back of that, the projection is that for the economy to be going back towards 7%, 7% to 8% handle next year, so with that, the forecast uh, is pretty realistic, I would say. Um, for Taiwan as well, I would say that yes, again, given that what Taiwanese has been doing and also the collaboration they have with some of the economies, especially in the USA, um, increasing for some of these Taiwanese companies themselves, yes, but in the short term-wise, the technology companies is affected by what's happening with China itself because um, they are being restricted with, uh, you know, with U.S. bans So they have got to move some of the productions elsewhere. But otherwise, on an overall basis, their main customer is still some of the U.S. tax firms. So on an overall basis, the Taiwanese economy will still be on a stable ground. It may not be an exceptional growth, but it will still be on a stable ground.
0: All right. I have to touch on a point that you raise. Uh, you raise cryptocurrencies. And, you know, this morning, there's so much talk about the excitement around Bitcoin because it hit a new record high overnight. 19,857 US dollars. Back in March, Bitcoins were around 4,000 US dollars. Uh, but, you know, usually when we see a spectacular rise, it's usually accompanied by two things. Uh, one, there are voices that say it's going to go much higher. And I've seen predictions say it's going to go up to 100,000 next. Here and then, there are other voices that say this is a bubble just waiting to be popped. Remember the tulip bulbs. Uh, so, what are you? What do you think from what you are hearing? Do you think this Bitcoin run could be different? And where should cryptocurrencies sit in portfolios if we're rethinking them for t- the 2020s? Well. Th-
1: the, the For the last 12 months, the the focus on cryptocurrency in the portfolio itself has not been, uh, you know, there's not much attention being paid to it. I would say the majority of them have only starting to understand, especially from the uh, well-established fund managers. But especially in the last three months, you have seen quite a number of all these established fund managers increasingly adding a cryptocurrency into the portfolio, especially Bitcoin. Now, having said that, the fact is that the cryptocurrency world, it's a completely different alternative altogether because it's not backed by any fundamentals. Now, the only reason why a lot of people have been give, giving a lot of interest into specifically this currency itself is because if you look at the broader um, world economy itself, now, most of the countries currently are increasing their debt, you know, to the build themselves out of the current situation. And that does not bode too well. That's why I can see, over especially over the last four to five months, U.S. dollars has been weakening across the board. And what alternative do you have? You can't rely on Chinese yuan because it's not internationalized. You can't, there's no alternative. You can't rely on the euro dollars. So what else is there? And Australia is getting hit by China with the uh, you know, development spat and uh, economic sanctions against uh, each other. But the fact is that. So the, the only thing you have is just the crypto. But then with the crypto, of course, a forecast of 100,000 is, is, I would say, is practically impossible. Um, I would say, yes, it will have, given the current situation is persists, there will be support for cryptocurrency, even though U.S. recently may have announced that they want to increase or introduce more regulations. Um, I would say that's a good move. Um, the fact is that most of the cryptocurrencies traded on exchange is not regulated, and that's where the worry is. Most of the investors have gotten into cryptocurrency investments generally have um, just looked at technicals and just trade on the back of that, but they have not realized that there are still certain nuances within this particular asset class. Now, looking at the security part of it, if, it's, if you're trading on exchange, not regulated, and um, if something happens with the provider or the so-called exchange, inverted commas, um, where are you going to get your crypto? So, I mean, then your wallet is lost. So where is it going to, tra- I mean, you can't even transfer anywhere. So you can't find, you can't do any recourse. But mm-hmm. At least you're trading on the regulated exchange. Then you have got a meaningful mechanism to get a recourse, All right? So mm-hmm. that's why we have actually partnered with a exchange that's regulated in New York. Mm-hmm. And currently they are going through an um, a approval or a process with MES to get themselves regulated in Singapore as well. And uh, then that itself gives us much more comfort in dealing with them to offer our clients the cryptocurrency investment.
0: That's really interesting insight. Yeah, look for recourse. All right, I want to switch gears and look at the three banks here in Singapore. Uh, the three banking stocks have climbed more than 20% since end of October. So they're benefiting from, you know, positive COVID-19 news and the recovery trade as well. But I also came across a research note, Maybank Kim Eng, saying they've downgraded all three to sell. Uh, DBS, uh, UOB, OCBC, Maybank Kim and keeping the target prices unchanged. Uh, they now offer a 2 to 8% downside at about $24.63 for DBS, $9.29 for OCBC, $21.24 for UOB. So, um, I guess the question is, do you agree that uh, the the banks have already climbed substantially and that their run-up has been too fast, too furious? Well,
1: I would say that um, the move that we've seen for this for the month of November has been pretty quick and fast. Um, as you mentioned earlier, it's like, you know, for the three banks itself, they have moved between 18 to 25% on average for each one of them. Um, I would say that, of course, in this month that you move that, that by the quantum, you prefer not to follow up with such a move Then you prefer to look for dips. And that would exactly what I would advocate to buy on dips. But having said that, the upside potential in the short term, of course, will be limited and uh, with the gradual withdrawal of the government relief measures and also reciting weakness in the balance sheet not evident by current ratios. So this weakness in the balance sheet does not mean the banks themselves are not well capitalized. In fact, if you look at exactly the capital tier one ratio of the three banks, they're still very well capitalized. DBS stands at 139 OCBC at 144 and UOB is 14.01%. So this will enable the three local banks to stand for the shocks as COVID-19 evolves. But then on the longer-term basis, I would say that, yes, there's still room to move. So therefore, if you're going to be a long-term investor, then I would say look for dips to buy. But of course, you know if you're going to be a short-term player itself, yes, you may want to take some profit and see for better levels to get in. So, you know... if. underpinning the positive outlook uh, is the provisions by the three local banks that will gradually decrease over time. And a strong credit matrix for the three banks will remain, uh, will cushion going into 2021. If you look at the non-performing loan ratio and non-performing asset coverage ratio, they are all improving and even the loan moratoriums have not increased significantly for the three banks.
0: Do you think any of the three banks are um, doing better than the others?
1: Uh, this isn't compared to, say, some of the uh, international banks themselves. Uh, compared say, to each other. Oh, compared to mm-hmm. each other. Then I would say the weakest one, of course, is UOB for now, um, among the three in terms of performance-wise. Um, but going forward, I would say that uh, given the strategy, especially by DBS, they will be probably be the lead runner. Um, of course, now with them taking over the Lajmi um, banks in, in India itself, they probably will have some work cut out for them. Um, and um, that itself, I would say that is going to be a, um, I would say it's going to be a question mark. I don't believe the fact that just because the particular Indian bank has a, a huge network in India that will bring in the revenue per se immediately because it takes some time for you to recapitalize the entire bank to see exactly what's going on. And of course, with such a small bank. It has a lot of things that's done manually, so therefore a lot there will be a lot of discovery work that needs to be done first before any meaningful um, impact or effect will come in, and that will probably be in you know, a couple of years down the road itself. So as for OCBC, the, the initial strategy that they had was into North Asia, but now given the fact that you know with Hong Kong having all these issues right now. They have to have to rethink exactly what will be the strategy going forward, in, especially in Hong Kong and you know, in China. In China itself, increasingly, the kind of competition they're facing from Chinese banks is um, it's huge. I would say it's huge because I can see the difference in terms of, say, the access, the network and the provision from um, the Chinese banks has been very aggressive. Um, So there's a lot of things that OCBC may have got to do internally in order to uh, make itself much more competitive in that space.
0: He's a guy who knows a lot, as you can hear. Jacob Dew is CIO of Envision Wealth Management. All right, I want to turn to Ray Dalio. So the billionaire founder of Bridgewater Associates is opening a family office in Singapore to run his investments and philanthropy t- throughout the region. I was just reading a post of his uh, on LinkedIn, and he says, I built that machine that is Bridgewater by constantly comparing its actual outcomes to my mental map of the outcomes that it should be producing." and finding ways to improve it. I just think that's so fascinating. But give us the inside um, scoop. What is the lure of Singapore for family offices? I mean, we saw James Dyson's Wayborn Group ramping up hiring here in 2019, one of the billionaires behind Heidi Lau, the world's biggest chain of Chinese hotpot restaurants, opening uh, Sunrise Capital Management in the city last year. And then this recent headline about Ray Dalio coming here to Singapore uh, to use it as a base to run his philanthropy throughout the region. So what is, what is the attractiveness of Singapore for these family offices? And what will these offices really bring to Singapore?
1: Well, before I go to, into the broader picture, let me explain exactly about Ray Dalio's uh, relationship with Singapore. Now, um, he has a uh, relationship with Singapore dates back 26 years ago. Now, GIC apparently was the, among the first investors into his fund. So since then he has very has become very accustomed to Singapore and how the government work, and through Singapore itself he has also become very aware of exactly how the Chinese work. So, uh, and when he was deciding when to where to establish his family office, it was a choice of either China or Singapore, and that was a pretty easy decision for him, I guess. So, uh, it's like you know, given the geopolitical happenings in the recent past, so definitely Singapore would be a better choice for him so rather than in you know, China. Now, so having said that, if you're looking at the broader picture itself, there are several factors are actually working in Singapore's favor in setting up a family office. So this year alone, I would say that the number of family offices setting up Singapore has more than tripled. So the factors include things like geopolitical tensions around the world, the increasing divisiveness, the potential mismanagement of finances in a particular country and, um, you know, the increasing frustrations faced by private bankers and even ultra-high net worth families. And, of course, uh, last and not least, the access to network and opportunities. So let me elaborate further. So you know, when the family office wants to send them a specific location, what they want to look for is actually the political stability and also the uh, ability for them to get access to a lot of things. Now, if you look at around the entire region itself, U.S. increasing is tough because of what's happening there. In, if it's, within Asia itself, if you look at Hong Kong, it, Hong Kong is a challenge. Although Carrie Lam recently has mentioned uh, last week that um, they want to develop this space. Um, and um, a couple of the family officers have set up a family association recently. But the fact is that Hong Kong now looks no longer like what it is in the past. There are a lot of factors that's constraining what it can do, and a lot of suspicions is going on. And that kind of environment is not does not work well. right? for any family family officer to set up a shop there. The second thing is that if you look at the divisiveness that's happening around the world also, now within of course again back to Hong Kong, you have got it's is being used as a point between China and US. Within US you have got a political fight between the two and increasingly the world is questioning the ability for US to come up to way to where it was in the past. So it's the therefore it makes perfect sense for them to relocate to look to a specific country or location that's gonna be neutral and it's easy to do business. So that's one of the main considerations. The second thing is that for the private bankers or even ultra high network families, now the profile have changed over the years. It has not been like straight straightforward in the past where I just you know, not like the European family offices where they tend to actually look at, say, some of the managers and say, All right, okay, okay I'll take this amount of money to send L S S allocation and keep me updated on semi annual basis. Mm. Um, For the Asian family office, they tend to be more involved in terms of the investment. So they are no longer just looking at their own businesses, but looking at the investment very closely and on every front. So it's not about just asset allocation. They want to know beyond that. They want to get into the network. They want to understand exactly what the opportunities available in the private equity space, in the private debt space, in the various opportunities that's made available. So then they will consider exactly what to invest in there. So therefore that leads to the third part about access to network opportunities. Now in terms of the arrangements, of course the family officers will have, they will try to keep everything as private and confidential as possible, but more importantly, they will like to talk to um, certain individuals or even some of the CEOs of specific companies where they will have a first-hand appreciation of what's going on in there and they can decide immediately whether, uh, how much do they want to invest. And that itself, increasingly, I've seen quite a lot of um, fund managers and even some of these um, private equity guys uh, approaching family offices as a backstop for and a funding source for a lot of their uh, investments. So besides the banks themselves, some of these offices are, I would say, large enough to even provide a, um, at least a $10 million to even 100 billion million investment into a particular investment uh, company.
0: Some more possibility for um, angel investing, then. Yeah. All right. Well, great insights. Thank you so much for joining us. Uh, wonderful. I, I can't believe we went to the same school once, Jacob. They turned out a genius like you, and then there's me, Jacob. Do we both went to Victoria Junior College? Correct. Yes, it is. See, my, my claim to fame is that Jacob and I went to the same school. <laughs> Jacob, thanks for joining us. CIO of Envision Wealth Management in Money and Me. Before acting on the information on MoneyFM, please consider if it's suitable for your own investment objectives, financial situation, and risk tolerance. To listen to more great interviews, download our podcasts at moneyfm893.sg or download the SBH radio app available on Google Play or the App Store.